0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Department 12, where we talk about everything IO Psych. I'm your host, Dr. Ben Butina, and joining me today is Dr. Rachel Boglai. How are you today, Rachel?
1: I'm doing great. Doing great and happy to be here today.
0: How did you end up hearing about the world of IO Psych?
1: So I came to IO in a really convoluted way. So i went to undergrad when i was extremely young so i was 16 and and nobody really knows what they want to do at that point in their life and you know when i got out of school um it was right after 9 11 i found myself working in banking and finance and after several years doing that i realized that that's not my passion and it's not really what i wanted to do so I was taking a lot of continuing education courses and some of the ones that i was taking allowed you to transfer credit to different universities so i ended up finding elmhurst university Uh, back then it was elmhurst college and i found this io psychology program and i had worked on my business degree prior to that and had done you know, a concentration in human resources. And I'm like, well, this is kind of like that. And, and some of these courses sound pretty fun. So I applied and I met with the head of the program. And to this day, I still thank him for that. Um, he admitted me into the program. And within my first semester, I knew this was what I was supposed to do. And it really changed the trajectory of my entire life. So before I started my second year in that graduate program, I was working for Valterra, working with the who's who of IO psychology and you know really seeing how my work could make a difference. And really that spurred my career from there.
0: Maybe just a thumbnail sketch of when you graduated to where mm-hmm. you are today. What does what your career look like?
1: Sure. So I found myself working at Valterra doing employee engagement surveys and 360 surveys. And I quickly realized that the people doing all of the things that I thought were really fun and cool were PhD level IO psychologists. So I started looking into IO PhD programs and I ended up um, in a program that kind of was executive style and allowed me to work and pursue my education at the same time. So from there, I moved into a consulting role at another organization called Knowledge Advisors. And there we really focused on looking at training evaluation and people analytics. And that really turned out to be a sweet spot of mine because I really enjoyed the statistics pieces. I really enjoyed the external consulting pieces, and I really enjoyed really demonstrating the impact of these people programs and how we could improve the efficiency, the effectiveness and the business outcomes by pulling different levers. I was really lucky in the fact that the organization let me use their benchmark database in order to do my dissertation. So that, you know, spurred a lot of different things for me. And from there, I ended up going into internal roles um, at a few different places before deciding, you know, really my heart lies in external consulting. And so now I'm at the Kaleidoscope Group, a full service diversity, equity, and inclusion consultancy. And I work with my clients to really help them understand the people in their organizations, what matters most to them, and how to create a culture that is equitable, fair, respectful, and inclusive for all people. And it's really great to see my work every day have a huge impact on people, and I always kind of describe the work that I do is uh, making work suck less for people because, you know, IO psychology is, is a big, long word and most people don't know what it means. And my response has always been, it's my job to make work suck less for you. And that's what I get to do every day.
0: I love that. Make work suck less. Could you say a little bit more about, you know, your heart's in external client consulting yeah or how did you know that what, what is it that resonates with you about working with external clients versus you know the sort of other approaches to work that you've tried
1: yeah i think there's a couple of different things so the first is becoming really a true subject matter expert in what it is that i'm doing and being able to share that knowledge with others and You know, that's also part of the reason I enjoy adjuncting and teaching at different times in different places, um, because you have that subject matter expertise. And and really, I get a, a great joy from being able to teach and help and, you know, share that knowledge. The difference with working internally, I found, is that you become really a generalist of all things, which is a great way to learn everything about everything and figure out what it is that you really enjoy doing and determining if, hey, do you want to be a generalist and be able to do a little bit of everything? Or do you really want to do a deep dive into one or two particular areas? And for me, I think that was the the biggest difference. And what I really like doing is is setting up my clients for success so that they can go ahead and implement the solutions and strategies. And then I can check back in on them and, and help them out where needed. Um, it's also a little bit faster paced in external consulting. So I can see tangible results of what I'm doing on a a more frequent and and quick basis.
0: I brought you in to talk about a specific project uh, that Mm -hmm. you're working on right now as as part of Kaleidoscope. Can you sort of set up the background? Where did this project come from and and sort of what's the problem we're trying to solve?
1: Sure. So when I joined the Kaleidoscope group, a, a little bit more than a year and a half ago, we had already had an established assessment practice. And with that, the, the main focus of our research methods were really in focus groups, key stakeholder interviews and survey. So as we all know, the world of work has changed so much over the past several years, and especially when it comes to DEI efforts. So. We have a standalone DEI survey that really does a deep dive into the different factors that make an inclus- inclusive workplace. And what we wanted to do is validate it for the, the world of work now. You know, it was a perfectly valid survey before it, you know, covered a, a seven key factors. And we had a lot of really great success with it but we knew that there were so many different factors and different areas that have impacted work over the past several years. So we took a really inclusive approach to the research, and we did what we call applied inclusion in determining what questions to include on the survey. And so That being said, it really started with doing a full literature review, and really going through both the academic literature, the popular press literature, um, looking at what other consultancies and other subject matter experts in the field of DEI um, were saying and what they were finding um, in their their work. we looked at more than 28 different uh, documents and articles in order to really hone in on what are the areas that that seem to matter most over the past three or four years. So, starting with that, we also did a series of subject matter expert interviews. So, we work with a number of, you know, highly tenured really skilled DEI consultants. So we were able to do several interviews to better understand, hey, what's changed, you know, during the you know past couple of years? And, you know, what are the nuances of work that are not something that we really took into consideration before? And then the next piece is that we wanted to be super inclusive in how we designed the survey. So we wanted to make sure that we leveraged our differences to really design survey content that would be applicable. And so we had more than 17 individuals help us when it came to what questions needed to be on the survey. We made sure to include all sorts of different identities. So there were more than 26 different attributes of people's identities, whether it be gender, age, race and ethnicity, geography, culture, you know, language. So we made sure to be super inclusive with all of that and really leverage those differences to design really strong survey content. Because really, when we think about it, the statistical validation of all of this can only catch so much. So it's super important that we start with that relevant content before we ever get into the validation piece of the survey work. So after that, we had a total of 43 different items that we wanted to test. And the next piece really is important, I think, because we made sure to purchase a representative sample of the U.S. workforce. So a lot of times when we're testing and validating um, assessments and surveys and such, we, we tend to lean more towards convenience sampling, but we wanted to make sure that this survey really made sense to all parties involved and would be a good representation and matter to employees you know, across the different demographics in the US workforce. So we purchased a sample from one of the world's largest sample providers, and we were able to put in place hard quotas for gender identity as well as race and ethnicity to match up the u.s labor force and then we put soft quotas in place for generation because it's it's hard to uh, get the full breadth of the different generations in survey research Um, it tends to over index on younger employees um, but we really did our best to ensure considerable participation across all of the different generations. We also had a soft quota in place when it came to industry, because we wanted to make sure that none of the industries were oversampled. So we put in place a cap of fifteen percent across all of the different industries that were available to us. So this is where I think the the fun part really gets started, because. I think a lot of times people think that statistics and research methods and data analysis can be somewhat dry, but it can actually be a really creative process. And what I did when examining the data was really take a different approach to ensuring that all voices were heard and came through in the survey questions that we ended up So, you know, I first ran a key driver analysis using a regression to really figure out in terms of the pilot sample, what the key drivers were. At that point, I wanted to examine what the different drivers were for each of the different demographic groups. So when I looked at those top five drivers, they weren't the same across all of the different demographic groups. And it became very clear to me that in order to make sure that the things that mattered most to these different demographic groups, we had to take some of this information into account. So we put into place some certain decision criteria when deciding what the final questions to be included in the survey were. And that was that any question that was going to be included had to show up in, as a driver for at least three out of the 11 demographic groups examined. And from there, I also wanted to layer in an additional piece of information to make sure that everybody's voices were heard and incorporated. And for those of us that have been to the SIAP conference over the past few years, um, there's been some presentations on heartbeat analysis and heartbeat analysis really helps us look at the survey data not just from a organizational level not just from a demographic group level but from an individual level and this way i could include all three of those in the analysis to determine the questions to be included so with this we develop an average score across all of the survey items for each individual respondent. And then we determine, you know, where do they have extreme scores? So anything within, you know, one standard deviation we consider kind of close enough to the mean, but anything that exceeds that either above or below is considered an extreme score. So I use this to really look at what were those items that had the most extreme responses. So in looking at that, we're able to see, you know, how many people kind of upvoted or downvoted the different questions, because that also gives us an idea of the sentiment and how they're feeling about that. So in looking at the different items to include, we were able to really hone in on that as well, because it tells a very different story than let's say um, percent favorable or percent strongly agree and agree, so it just gives us a different way to look at the data and better understand people's thoughts and feelings going into it. So based on all of that, we were able to call the survey down to 27 items and seven factors. And the the nice thing is that the framework um, we landed on, you know, was aligned to our previous framework. What was different is the nuances and what's included in each of the different factors. So when it comes to workplace inclusion, we found that commitment to DEI values and practices are important. Um, Accountability, where everyone shares ownership of inclusion, equity, fair fair treatment and access, connection, so relationship between the individual and the organization voice, which is employee opinions are heard and valued, differences, so valuing and leveraging unique differences, and then finally representation. So the perceived levels of diversity and inclusion within the organization. And so it was a lot of work. It was six plus months of my life, really digging into this, collecting the data, um, coming up with the survey items, and I'm really, excited to share with everybody because we took a a truly different approach in how we did the survey validation, used inclusive research practices, and then applied inclusion in the data analysis to get to where we are today.
0: Is there anything about either the process or the, the final output that surprised you?
1: I think the funnest, nerdiest part for me was really examining the different drivers by the different generations and by the different demographic groups in terms of race ethnicity um, and gender because it was fascinating to see how certain items really pop up to the top um, for different groups and you know the the number one predictor for most demographics was that i'm valued as an individual not just as an employee and and the funny thing is, is that's not one of the the top, you know, five drivers for the overall sample, but it did pop up to the top for almost every demographic group. So that was a little bit fascinating to see and in real time and and what was most important. And sometimes it really validated kind of our different bias and, you know, what's in the media about what's important to different groups. And sometimes it didn't. And I think that's always the most fascinating piece of, of dealing with people. And that's what always keeps it exciting.
0: Fantastic. Um, thank you so much for sharing that, that story. I think it's inspiring to hear about, you know, scholar practitioners who are, who are doing research as part of their applied work. And it's not a world that most of us get to see very often. Just for maybe some of the students out there, could you name check some of the statistical processes or procedures that you followed uh, in the process and just, you know, they can make, mentally compare that to what they're learning in stats and, and see if they're learning <laughs> anything useful?
1: Sure, so whenever I'm going through the process of, you know, survey work and validation um, or assessment validation, um, really the, the first thing I do is you know, run our descriptives, look at the frequencies, um, examine the data from that perspective and and really get a feel of it before diving into any type of advanced analytics. Um, At that point, what I do is um, run the correlations to better understand, you know, what items are related to the other items and in this case you know looking at any items that overlapped at a high level and determining which of those questions should we keep and maybe which one of them that we could get rid of in the survey Um, the next piece was to run the key driver analysis using a regression and also do that same regression for each of the different demographic groups. And we purchased a large enough sample that we were able to do that. Um, And I think that sometimes we can't just given that the end sizes that we're working with. So that was the next piece. And then after that is really running the ANOVAs to see where there were significant differences among the different demographic groups and how they answered the questions or the specific factors that we were looking at. And finally, the factor analysis to bucket each of the survey items into the different factors that make up workplace inclusion. So I think you know, it was a very you know, standard process in a way, but also being able to break down the analysis you know, from the large sample and then break it down to the demographic groups through those different um, statistical tests, the ANOVAs and the regressions, and then taking it one step further down where we could look at it on an individual level using the heartbeat analysis um, was really a different way of doing things that I think most practitioners um, or people in the academic world aren't really taking that intentional approach to make sure that all voices are heard. and. I don't think it would have been as strong and the model would not have been as strong without incorporating each of those different steps.
0: Thank you very much for sharing your experience with the uh, audience. I, I will share a link to your company and also to your LinkedIn profile. Is there any other place that listeners should look for you?
1: I think those are probably the, the two best places. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So you know, feel free to shoot me a message and happy to connect.
0: All right. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.